Well, if we can say that it is well with our soul, isn't it true that it's only because Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul? Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2? We're going to look this morning at verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you for this truth, for every part of it. We thank you again for the shed blood of Jesus Christ and pray you would apply that blood to every soul here by your Spirit, according to your grace and mercy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Isn't it interesting how often in Scripture we are called to exercise our memories? to remember where we once were. Why is that, you suppose? Because we forget. We forget. We take grace for granted. We become accustomed to this life in Christ, as we should, but not without the remembrance of where Christ found us. This is not something that is unique to Paul. Peter does the same type of thing from time to time. He would call those who are experiencing all of the blessings of being in Christ, he calls them aside for a moment and says, remember where he found you. Remember what your life was about when he found you. The reason for this must be so that our gratitude, our thanksgiving, our realization all swells to the praise and glory of Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul does here in this 11th verse. Interestingly, if you were to count, I think there are 33 verses that come before this 11th verse of chapter 2. And all of them are what we call indicative truths. In other words, they tell us who we are based upon what Christ has done for us. They indicate who we are now, having been in Christ. This 11th verse is the first time that we are told to do something. We call those imperatives. And isn't it interesting, we're not told to obey, that's coming later. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are full of things for us to obey. But the first thing that we're told to do is to remember what we have been saved from. We might say it like this. When the glory of being on the mountaintop begins to fade, we have to take a close look into the valley to see where our feet once were. 
remembering our total inability to scale the height of the mountain. And not only that, we couldn't even see the top of the mountain because the mist and fog of sin obscured it. We didn't know the heights to which we could be taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this was normal for us. We were in every way dead in our sin. It was our life. We were walking according to the course of the world, held captive by the prince of the power of the air. With all of that fresh in mind now, we observe the scenery that's all around us now, having been brought to faith in Christ. Our gratitude, thanksgiving, and hope, and our humility is brought to the foreground. Paul ends this section of these Verses by saying that it was all according to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So another thing we're called to remember is that we are where we are by grace and only because Christ has shed His blood to bring us here. He has overcome every obstacle. It was nothing for Him to take those who were dead in sin and make them alive. It was nothing for him to take those who were under the tyranny and power of Satan to set them free. It was nothing for him to take those who once walked according to the course of the world and set them on a completely new course. And he was willing to do that. He volunteered to do that. He succeeded in that. We are all here this morning, those of us who are in Christ as exhibits of his success. Now let me remind you of where we left off a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2. Probably the greatest, or at least the most well-known verses of this whole book of Ephesians, verse 8, 9, and even verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's the mountaintop, right? Saved by grace, not by works. We are God's creation, His workmanship, created in Christ. Now we are performing those works that He has called us to do. Thank God for that truth. And based upon that, we are called to put it in the proper perspective. And the proper perspective would lead us back down to gaze back down into where the Lord has brought us from and fuel our hope and faith to walk with Him in the future. Now let's not miss the context. When Paul says things like, remember that you, he's referring there to Gentile believers who comprised most, if not all, of the church that he was writing to in Ephesus. He is making a distinction here between himself and his fellow Jews and those who were Gentiles by birth. It is not an overstatement, I don't think, to say that there has never been nor ever will there be such a divide between mankind as that Jew-Gentile relationship. 
The Jews were God's chosen nation. And if you were to turn back into your Bible to the book of Romans in the third chapter, Paul would say, what advantage has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? He answers that question by saying, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the word of God, the law of God was committed to this nation of the Jews. There was great antagonism between Jew and Gentile. The Jews considered the Gentiles, this is not exaggeration, to be dogs. Jewish rabbis frequently would teach that the only purpose that Gentiles serve upon the earth is to fuel the fire of hell. They were self-righteous. Paul hints to that and rebukes that here in this 11th verse, which we'll see. The Jew-Gentile relationship represents the most deeply seated alienation that has ever existed between people groups in the world. And that's saying a lot, isn't it? Because even in our own experience, we live among some great alienation and separation between people groups based upon race, based upon political view, and any number of other things. But all of those and even all of those taken together pale in comparison to what the Jews thought of the Gentiles, of which are all of us. Unless you have Jewish blood coursing through your veins, you are a Gentile by birth. And so we look at this and the words of F.F. Bruce here on this larger context are helpful. He says, the transformation that enabled Jew and Gentile to become truly one in Christ was the greatest triumph of the gospel in the apostolic age. Think about it. The gospel of Christ is on display in great way and in great form, taking Saul of Tarsus, a preeminent Pharisee, converting him on the road to Damascus, stripping him of all of that privilege of his upbringing, having been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, and makes him the greatest evangelist ever known to be sent to the Gentile world. That's an amazing story of the grace of God and how it totally diffuses barriers, alienation. That being true, one application we can make before we ever get involved with these verses, one application is that there, is, there never should be such a difference or a divide amongst the people of God, that we cannot come together as one in Jesus Christ. Any type of disunity is dishonoring to the Lord. If God's grace can take Saul, make him Paul, send him through great suffering to the Gentile world, then that same grace can overcome any petty differences you and I might have. The only thing that stands in the way is our own pride, our own sin, our own stubborn-hearted rebellion 
against God. Much of that, all of that needs to be repented of before God. How much harm to the cause and body of Christ has been done over petty difference. God spare us from that. God help us to see it for what it is. God help us to know the real, true power of the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ removes all racial, political, cultural distinctions and replaces it with brotherly love one for another. That's the power of Christ's gospel. The power of the gospel preeminently is converting a sinner, giving him a new heart, but then the outflow of that power is giving that sinner now a real love for his brother who may be totally different from him in every way. It's one of the reasons why we promote the unity of the body of Christ centered around fellowship in Christ and not centered around some other fleshly or worldly thing. All of those things go and hide in their rightful place when we realize our one true fellowship is in Christ and Christ alone. So let's look at this 11th verse. And I have three points this morning taken from these verses. All concerning the Gentiles, the antagonism with which they were held by the Jews, who themselves were self-righteous, and how they were saved out of all of this by the blood of Jesus. So the first point is this in verse 11, they were scorned by birth. Just by being born, they were held in contempt by this elect nation of the Jews. Verse 11 says, Therefore, remember that you, you Gentiles, once Gentiles in the flesh, that that phrase could be rightly interpreted as pagans or heathen by birth. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand. So here is Paul's dig at the self-righteous Pharisees. Here is Paul's dig at the self-righteous nation of the Jews. He, his dig comes in this way. He calls them the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. This is the same Paul that would write that true circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And that he is a true Jew who is one inwardly, not outwardly. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. Taking a Gentile, a pagan or a heathen by birth, and placing him into the same family of God, grafting him in, grafting her in by grace, now into the real, true family of God. So here we find pagans by birth. By the end of this, pagans by birth far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. But the bulk of this is found in verse 12. There are a few things here said by Paul concerning the Gentiles, these Gentiles in the flesh that really show them and really show us how spiritually bankrupt we really are. 
And so that would be the second point, spiritually bankrupt. Notice what he says in verse 12. That at that time, referring to prior to their conversion, prior to their experience of grace, prior to the fourth verse where God who was rich in mercy because of His great love broke in upon them, He says, at that time, you were without Christ. We often read and speak of this phrase, prepositional phrase of Paul, of being in Christ. And all of the blessing that is attached to that in union with Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here of the Gentiles and really of all of those who are outside of Christ is that they are without Christ and it is the very opposite of all of the blessings of being in Him. We could translate the phrase or or think of it in this way. We have no connection. We had no connection to Jesus Christ. There was nothing there that united us to Him. And really Paul is is saying here that you were standing alone. You had nothing with which to come under the shade or the shadow of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You were apart from the Christ in every way, which pointed to the fact that you had no true relationship to the Son of God. Many in our day and time suppose they have relationship to the Son of God because of their upbringing, because of their close association to the church. Whatever it may be, many suppose that they have this relationship. But in reality, the same thing Paul is saying to the Gentile now believers in Ephesus could be said of all of us. Prior to conversion, very simply, you are without Jesus Christ. What a dreadful place to be. What a dreadful predicament to be in. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice, as you call to mind the first chapter that began with verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we run all the way down through those great truths that end to the praise of the glory of God's grace. All of that great sentence of doxology. What we're reading here is the very opposite. We're reading the very opposite. No longer are we considering what it's like and what it means to be in Christ. The consideration here by Paul is what it means to be outside of Him, without Him, left alone. Standing alone as one who would be responsible for your own sin. Standing alone as one who would be responsible to make payment for your sin. Standing alone to mediate between you and a holy God. Perhaps that paints the picture most vividly. We're told that Christ is the one mediator between God and man. The holy God who is just. He is full of grace and mercy, but He is just and He is also full of wrath. Someone must mediate between Him and His creation, that mediator being Jesus Christ. But Paul is here saying to the Gentiles, remember, though now it is rightfully true of you that you are created in Christ, the very workmanship of God, remember 
that once you were standing outside of Him. And for those who are in Christ, isn't that a great encouragement? Isn't that a great cause for rejoicing? And doesn't it humble you so much to know that God came to me in the person of His Son when I didn't even really fully realize how much I needed Him. When I was enshrouded in Egyptian night, in darkness, blackness, God sent His Son, sent His Spirit to make the gospel of His Son known in my heart and in my life. That's the first part of this. Without Christ but it doesn't get any better. The second thing he reminds them of and he calls to their mind, not only were you without Christ, but you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens from that society or that nation in which the sovereignty of God took earthly form. Because as we've already read from Paul in Romans chapter 3, it was to the nation of Israel or the Jews that God gave His oracles. God made Himself known to them. God gave them His law. They were the special nation of God under the Old Testament era. Pagans, Gentiles, heathen, are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. All of these things seem to to deepen the understanding of just how far off we were when Paul concludes this by saying, you were once far off. How far off were we? We were without Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And then thirdly, he says, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Can I point you to look at the language of that? The, the, the wording of this in verse 12. Strangers from the covenants, plural, of promise, singular. I think this is Paul pointing to this, this what we spoke about in briefly this morning, this overarching covenant that we call the covenant of grace and all of these individual covenants pointing to this one thing. All of these covenants with Adam and with Noah and with Moses and with David are all elements of this greater covenant that God has made being the covenant of grace. But notice, as Paul condemns the Gentiles under their lost condition, and he's calling them to remember it, one of the ways that he expresses this is by saying, you are a stranger of the covenants of promise. God gave these great covenants and promises to his people, the Jews. You were alienated from that commonwealth of Israel. You were without Christ, and you were strangers to these promises. They meant nothing to you, and you hadn't even heard them. You didn't know anything about them. But as we keep going, he says, having no hope. No hope. 
Can I speak to you very plainly and very clearly? If you are outside of Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You may push back against that. But I can tell you with all honesty, and I'm I'm saying it in love, you have no eternal hope. The only thing that you can do is live your best life now. And that's it. The only thing that you can do is try to fill your life with the fleeting, passing pleasures of this world. And that's it. You have no hope. I suppose you could say, well, I have the hope of tomorrow. I have the hope that the sun will rise again, just like it did this morning. You better pray it does. Because if it doesn't, then you will fully experience what it means to die in your sins outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be outside of Christ without Christ is to have no hope. I like Curtis Vaughn's definition of hope here. He says, hope is a blending or a marriage of desire with expectation. It's got to be both. We have the desire to go to heaven, to be with Christ forever, to worship him in the beauty of holiness forever. But that's not all we have. We don't just have the desire we have the expectation. Because we're told in Scripture by a God who cannot lie, by a God who has made Himself known, that that's the end of all of those who have been redeemed by the blood of His Son. That you and I will go to be with Christ for all eternity. That's why we sing and pray, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall become sight. Because we are a people who have great hope. But then there is the last part of this in verse 12. And perhaps this is a summary of all that has gone before. Without God in the world. You remember last week we took a break from Ephesians and looked at 1 John chapter 5. And we were told there that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. If you are outside of Christ, you are without Him in a world held under the sway of the wicked one. Only the Spirit of God can convince you of that danger. Only the Spirit of God can convince you of that horror of being held captive by Satan to do His will. without God in the world. If we take all of these things together, they represent the great lostness of humanity, even while they are specifically applied to the Gentiles, pagans in the flesh. These things ultimately are true of every unbeliever. What are they again? To be without Christ. 
to be aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, to be strangers from the covenants of promise, to have no hope, and to be without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak and black picture, right? It's a parallel to the first three verses of the chapter, which applied there not just to Gentiles, but to Gentile and Jew alike, of being dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, conducting yourselves in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the mind, and by nature being a child of wrath. This is the parallel to that. And I can say it's the parallel to that because the next part of God's revelation after making that great lostness known was the fourth verse where we are told, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. That same pattern is followed here in verses 11 through 13. Verses 11 and 12 Great condemnation, even though it comes in the context of remembering what you once were. But on the heels of that, on the heels of remembering just how lost we were, in very great way we have a contrast that brings forth the grace of God again. I don't know if we've ever seen this or if you ever thought of the 13th verse being on par with the 4th verse, but it's right there. It expresses the same truth in different words. The context is the same. Verses 1 through 3, totally lost. Verse 11 and 12, totally lost. Verses 1 through 3, totally unable to do anything about your lostness. Verse 11 and 12, totally unable to do anything about your lostness. Verses 1 through 3, without Christ. Verse 11 and 12, without Christ. Verses 1 through 3, without hope. Verse 11 and 12, without hope. Verse 4, but God is rich in mercy. Verse 13, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. You see how they're companions? They're parallel. One applies to Gentile and Jew alike. The other here, we're just bringing together, bringing it home to us as Gentiles as we sit here and contemplate just how lost we were. We were as lost as could be. We couldn't intentionally be any more lost than we were. But the same God who was rich in mercy in the fourth verse shows himself again in the 13th verse, this time very specifically in the person of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says, how he summarizes all of this. He says, by nature, we were Christless, stateless friendless, godless, and hopeless. That's a summary of those five things. But all that does is lead us down to verse 13. Paul says, remember. 
and we've remembered how lost we were. We have remembered the depth of our sin. And sometimes that's painful. To go back and to look and to see and to remember. But I think this is at the heart of what Paul is calling us to do. Go back and remember the depth of sin. Where it had taken you. The fruit and result of that sin or those sins in your life. How you had transgressed the commandments of God. How you, have, how you were walking under the, the scorn of God. At enmity with Him. And as you call those things to mind and you remember how grievously you sinned against God, dear believer, be encouraged. Because we're told here that now, now that things are different, now that the mercy and love of God has found us in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, all of that sin that you have called to your mind, all of that which you have acted out in your lostness, all of the the lust and the perversion, all of the lying, the stealing, all of those breaking of the commandments of God that have been heaped upon your memory, And if they could, would cause you to sink into the depths of despair. That's what the wicked one wants. When all of these things come to mind, but notice that this is is of God. Often, time to time, we are to call to mind just how close to utter despair we were. And if God had not intervened, we would have slipped beneath the surface of despair, never to be seen again. Never to know the love of God again. Can I say to you with all love, if you die today outside of Christ, you will fall underneath the eternal wrath and judgment of God and there will forever be no hope for you. But while you live, while you draw your next breath, God being gracious to you, allowing you to fill your lungs with air at least one more time, Let me say to you, repent of those sins. Come to Christ. You are under deception that you don't even realize the strength of. The God of this world has blinded your eyes and you think this world has something to offer you. This world has nothing to offer you but death. It offers you momentary pleasure, momentary fun, but all of it in the end comes down and winds its way down into the very pit of hell. This is what we remember that we have been saved from. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How so? By the blood of Christ. Why are we so simple-minded about preaching the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ? Because the Scriptures tells us to be that simple-minded.
Please notice what verse 13 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far, far off, How far off were we? Well, we were without Christ. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. That's as far off as we could be. But the verse says, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near And so take all of those things and just flip them upside down. Now we have Christ. Now we are members of the commonwealth of Israel. We are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. Now we are those who have great hope. And now, praise God, we have God in this world. And He makes sense of everything. Even in all the bleakness and darkness of living in this world that is held under the sway of the wicked one, we have God in the midst of it. But can't we say it even better than that? He has us in the midst of it. And there is nothing now that can befall us. You know, we sang earlier, whatever my lot. That was taught me to say it as well with my soul. Even when that lot gets crooked. There's a great old book, The Crook and the Lot, that talks about your way being crooked, but yet it's the lot that God has given you. Take heart. You have Him in the world. And one day, He'll remove us from it to be with Christ forever. But notice that this has not been done apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So would you contemplate for a moment with me what it cost Christ to bring you who were once far off near? It didn't happen by default. Christ did not snap His fingers and bring those who were far off near. Christ did not simply pray for those who were far off and bring them near. The verse says that He brought us near by His own blood. For those who were without Him, He shed His blood. For those who were aliens from the commonwealth of the chosen nation of God, Christ shed His blood. From those who knew nothing of the covenants of promise, Christ shed His blood. For those who had no hope, Christ shed His blood. For those who were without God in the world, Christ shed His blood. Brought near by the blood of Christ. This is shorthand of Paul referring to to the whole Calvary event. The blood of Jesus Christ. We just finished reading the Gospel of Matthew, those later chapters which detailed for us the sufferings of Christ. 
That's what it took. Nothing less. This is what it took to bring those who were once far off near. The shedding of his life's blood. The giving up of his spirit. The crucifixion. The crown of thorns. The nails in the hands and feet. The mocking, the scourging, the carrying of his own cross. That's what it took to bring those who were far off near. God did not spare his own son. He did not conceive of another way. Not even, an, not even in answer to His own Son. If there be another way, let this cup pass from Me. But even then, the Son reconciled to the Father's will, not your will, but not My will, but your will be done. So I can say in, in all assurance that the truth of God is behind this statement. The blood of Christ makes everything right. Every wrong thing made right. All of your sin lived out in rebellion against God. Either high-handed rebellion or rebellion that is much more subtle. Not everyone shakes their fist into the face of God and goes out and lives in rebellion. Rebellion comes in other forms as well. It's, it's like this, hearing the Gospel time after time after time after time and refusing to come to Christ. That's rebellion. And the wage of that rebellion, like we spoke last week, the wage of that rebellion, which is a sin against the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is death. But not just a physical death, a spiritual death, the second death. So let me ask you the question Have you been brought near by the blood of Christ? If you have, I pray that you will remember where He found you and what He has saved you from. And that your heart will be filled with gratitude, love, thanksgiving, praise, and humbled before Him. Oh, but dear friend, let me say this to you. If you've not been brought near by the blood of Christ, and what I mean by that is if you have not been humbled to the point of repenting of your sin, casting your all on Christ by faith, then these things said of Gentiles in Paul's day remain true about you. You're without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. The best you can do is go out and live it up here and now and have all the fun that you can have. That's going to be the lot of your life. And in the end, that amounts to nothing more than a wasted life.
that which could have been lived into the glory of God. All of those gifts and talents, abilities that were given you in His common grace could have been used unto His glory, but you've squandered them, you've wasted them, you've not used them. I realize many people, I used to be this way when I was a youngster, under the conviction of God, I would, in my flesh, I would deal with that in this way. Just before I die, I'll accept Christ. I'll receive Christ just before I die. That would be a a real mercy and grace of God to give you coherency in the moments of your death and the desire to do so. But very few die in that way. The vast majority of humanity's life is snuffed out like that. Don't let that be true of you. This world has nothing to offer you that is lasting. I didn't say that what the world has to offer you is not fun. Satan oftentimes would use the fun of the world to lure you or to lull you to sleep to where you live for the high of the next time of having fun. May God awaken you. May you see Christ as he truly is, beautiful in glory, having shed his blood for you, having given himself for you, making payment for the sins that you committed, past, present, and future, having atoned for them, having appeased the wrath of God, having propitiated the sin and anger and wrath of God against you. Would you come to Him? I can tell you, that you will no longer be spiritually bankrupt, but that your account will be overflowing with the riches of Jesus Christ. I won't tell you that if you come to Christ, everything in your life will be all roses and sunshine. I couldn't tell you that with a clear conscience. Because very often, It pleases the Lord to take His people through times of suffering, lives of trial. But what I can tell you is in the end, in the end, when your eyes close in death or when your eyes fix on Christ in the air, it will be well with your soul. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the message of the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, for this day of grace in which we live. O God, in mercy, in mercy, would you show yourselves to those who are without Christ, without hope, without God in this world. Would you remove the deception that they are living under? Would you break through any obstacle that is keeping them from coming to Christ? 
any lie of the devil that is stealing away the glory of the Son of God in their estimation, oh God, would you remove it? Would you allow them first to see the lostness of their condition? To see that they are indeed dead in sin and in great need? We're thankful that you don't leave us in the despair of that realization, but you give us eyes to see Christ, eyes to see the truth, ears to hear the truth. Lord, in every way would you awaken those who are lost in sin to the beauties of your Son. We are thankful for his shed blood and how all of us who now are in Christ after having remembered how lost and how far off we once were, now having remembered that we have been brought near only by the blood of Christ, it's not our good works. We had none. It was nothing in us. But in every way, we are His workmanship. Having been created in Jesus Christ, for good works, which you, our Father, have prepared that we should walk in them in eternity past. Oh God, be merciful. Be merciful, we pray. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.